0: A fire on the mountain burning out of control the sky sky's blazing all its red and gold the temperature's rising and the winds blowing hot we gotta turn this ship around we run aground. we gotta turn this welcome ship to around. off the record of Paulhoods here on WKL anni Steve Brad with the internet at where we are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. And I'm very happy to be joined for today's show with my good friend, Matt Robeson. Who is the author of a terrific blog, a more perfect com, about all things politics, but really all about the deeper issues that are going on in politics today? Matt Robeson, welcome back to Off the Record.
1: Great to be back.
0: You know, we've. Uh, had some interesting developments here in america we've since you and i i think last talked uh, we have gotten pretty deep into public impeachment hearings uh we've had uh, yet another democratic debate this time with 10 candidates on stage we've had some en- new entries into the democratic debate um, things are heating up on the New Hampshire state level with candidates for governor, candidates for executive counselor, uh, candidates both declared and close to cl- declaring for uh, a critical state Senate seat. Uh, I'm not even sure where to begin. You know, I I, I almost want to drop into my Ukrainian forebears and start talking in tongues about the famous telephone call between Donald and Zelly Zelensky about uh, favors. I mean, you know, when you think about that telephone call, hey, Zelly, it's Donald. Um, uh, Mr. President, what can we do for you? I, I want you to do me a favor. Just a favor. Get it? Get it? Quote, favor, unquote, favor. I need a favor. Now, favor in in mob talk, you know, is kind of like um, more than a favor. Favor in mob talk is is means I want something from you. I, I want something. Uh, I want I want something important to me from you. And when you got like the president of the United States who's uh, held back four hundred million dollars in. Weapons that the Ukrainian Zelensky needs to defend his country from Russian aggression. And he's asking for a favor. I bet Zelensky's ears perked up a little bit. And it became clear that what the president of the United States wanted uh, was uh, dirt on his political rival. At that point in July 25, 2019, recently announced Joe Biden who he saw, that is, Donald J. Trump saw as a serious threat. He wanted dirt on him, and what he was going to do, he was going to trade White House meeting and arms for dirt on Joe Biden. Now, that's kind of the basics, but what are you getting from the impeachment hearings, both in terms of how the substance is playing? Uh, Are the Republicans getting anywhere with their defense, which seems to be... Uh, depending on the day and the time and the questioner the defense seems to be well the whole thing's a hoax it never happened or Ukraine really was behind the 2016 election interference it wasn't the Russians and even if it was the Russians that was a scam and didn't really happen and maybe we need to investigate why Ukraine did it and the real witness we need to hear from is Hunter Biden about why he sat on that board and Actually, the real witness is the whistleblower who's protected by U.S. law f- from disclosure because whistleblowers need to be protected in order to come forward with the kind of information they have. But that it, it seems to be uh, unsatisfactory. It's all unsatisfactory to the Republicans. Are they getting anywhere? Is anybody watching this? Does anybody care? That's my so question there, for you.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a lot in this. I, I break this down to um, sort of two points here that I think are worth focusing on because there's so much going on, some of it literally in a foreign language, um, a, a lot of complicated facts. Um, so two points. One is that all along, all throughout this year and then after the news of the whistleblower report broke, there has been a lot of caution Uh, in certain Democratic circles uh, about proceeding with impeachment. And it was based on the fact that impeachment is polarizing. It tends to send each side back to their partisan trenches. And that's what we're beginning to see here. The polling around uh, reactions to impeachment, the prospect of impeachment after an initial bump, which was largely driven by Democrats kind of coming home and coming to their side and getting on board with it. The polling has really stabilized and what you're starting to see under the surface, for example, in the new St. Anselm's poll that came out this week is that that polarizing effect is beginning, just beginning to show up in the polling numbers of our two uh, local New Hampshire members of Congress both of whom are in somewhat or very competitive districts, both of whom you're seeing the effect of Republicans beginning to get polarized and activated. And when I talk, um, you know, kind of off the record to people who are working on frontline races for Democrats, they're beginning to see some of these same effects. So that's really point number one. It's very polarizing and we're beginning to see that play out and it doesn't look like politically, there's really much further for Democrats to go on this. Uh, and it's beginning to have a little bit of a rebound effect in swing districts. The so, second point... Yeah. Oh, go ahead.
0: Well, go ahead. so I'm, I'm just trying to uh, unpack and dig under that a little bit. So when you talk about polarizing effect and you talk about swing districts, you... Um, you know, I, I was in one of those districts not too long ago. And it uh, the second district of New Hampshire, the left side of the state, so to speak, is always thought and appears to be a little more uh, to the left than the right side of the state. It's funny how those things just conveniently stack up. But um, we have uh, Annie McLean Custer, who's kept what... Has looked like a pretty firm hold on the second district. Chris Pappas, of course, is in his first term over on the right side in district number one, but clearly uh, both of them are going to be subject to uh, aggressive challenges, um, especially in district one, which has a much more right leaning. Uh, electorate, it's clear to see that 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 is a district that's a a swing district. So when you, Matt, talk about the polarizing effect on those congressional races, um, what exactly do you mean? Unpack for us just a little bit about what you're seeing in the polls that suggest that the polarization uh, could have an impact in the races.
1: Sure. So... There's this idea of negative partisanship. Um, and, you know, if, you, if, if you're if really down in the nerd weeds, um, you might follow someone like uh, Dr. Rachel Bitticofer, um, who, who writes a lot about this and actually had a, a prediction model that uh, exactly nailed uh, the 2018 election outcome. Um, and, and analysts like that talk about the effect of negative partisanship in politics today. What it basically means is that People are so divided between the two parties, um, and they're mostly motivated by fear and hatred of the other side. You're much more likely to be motivated and activated by being essentially triggered by the other side. For hmm. Democrats, uh, that's by Donald Trump. For Republicans, um, it's by you know all things associated with Democrats, which Republicans usually message as, socialism um you know scary anti-american socialism um and you are seeing that in the messaging from both sides and you're seeing that play out um in polling and in turnout results uh for example in, in some of the recent uh elections the kentucky gubernatorial the louisiana gubernatorial um a very polarized electorate um and a real activation through negative partisanship um uh, in those cases, uh, of Democrats um, who are really motivated to turn out and vote by fear and anger at the other side,
0: yeah, you know I, w- I mean we've you and I have talked about emotionally resonant messaging. Uh, we've uh, you and i have have long thought that the Republicans generally, using uh, fear, have always been a little better. Uh, than Democrats, well, a lot better than Democrats at coming up with emotionally resonant messages uh, that connect on kind of a gut level. And Democrats have always been a little bit intellectual about things. Um, and certainly with Donald J. Trump in the White House, uh, the Democrats have a uh, a clear a, a clear target, a clear uh, political enemy, if you will. And, personally i happen to think donald j trump's an enemy of, of the country at large but putting that aside in messaging terms it at least gives the democrats a target and a galvanizing target to go after in a hyper partisan atmosphere and as for uh, republicans they don't they don't yet have a candidate to to target but they certainly can uh given for example what the republicans are doing Uh, With respect to the impeachment hearings point to the sham, the hoax, the scam, uh, the making, uh, making, making it all up and not going after the real, real problems that um, um, Congressman Nunes and his compatriots uh, are pushing in the, the impeachment inquiry. So in that hyper partisan kind of atmosphere, how does that relate to what we're seeing in uh, the New Hampshire congressional districts.
1: So, you know, it's the, it's the effect of impeachment, that exactly what you just said that, that you're driving at, that impeachment is such a polarizing uh, event. It essentially forces people back to their side. It's hard to be wishy-washy on it. Um, and you see your side essentially as being under attack, um, and you, you tend to get drawn back to, defend it. And that's kind of the the beginnings of the numbers that we're seeing there, the the whisperings of of some of what we're hearing kind of throughout the country in Democratic-held swing districts. Um, And look, you know, you you had asked earlier about um, the whole impeachment mess, the testimony that's come out, all the details, and the fact, you know, I think you could really go back to the um, somewhat famous press conference that White House acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, gave about four weeks ago. You remember that one? You bet. He caught a lot
0: of flack for it. Oh, yeah. He said, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. That's a, That wasn't that the famous quid pro quo conference? That was a quid pro quo. Totally. Yeah. Yes, I definitely, we, it was definitely a quid pro quo. Absolutely. And, Get over it. And it happens, all the, it happens all the time. So what?
1: Well, you know, people thought he was crazy, right? He got a lot of criticism. Trump blew up at him behind the scenes. Well, I think he was being crazy like a fox. Because, look, if you break down the, the Republican options on impeachment for, for, for defense here, you've got three, right? You've got process. It's like, oh, it's unfair. The hearings are unfair. They're behind closed doors. The whistleblower. And you see them you know, doing some of this stuff, right? But at the end of the day, who cares? You know, no one outside of a small circle in Washington, D.C. really cares about the details of the Washington process, right? So that, that's, that's not a great one. And they know that. They know that. The second option for them is to litigate the facts. Well, that hasn't been going very well either, because the facts, as Stephen Colbert famously said, have a known liberal bias. And in this case, uh, they definitely do not cut well uh, for Donald Trump. And then there's the third option, the Mick Mulvaney option, which is, you know what, there's a quick pro quo, we did it, and it's no big deal, who cares? And that seems to be pretty much where they're going, and it's probably pretty much going to work. It's going to all boil down to Republicans saying, look, this wasn't great, he said things he shouldn't have said, but this isn't what you impeach a president over, right? We've got to defend our president here, and it's great for their side, it's great politics for their side, they can probably live with that in their own minds, and... uh That's probably where this is heading.
0: We're talking with Matt Robeson, who's the author of A More Perfect Union Forum.com, a blog that's all about what's going on underneath politics today. It's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at NHTalkRadio.com, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're going to take a short break so that we can hear from some of the good folks who keep our station happy and healthy. and on the air and we'll be back to talk with matt about the state of the presidential race don't go away We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAMNFM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. Anytime of the day or night, anywhere in the known universe on Jupiter and Mars, you can check in to nhtalkradio.com and hear off the record. Troll through the various and sundry kinds of wonderful shows we've done. And you can also catch us as a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. I'm talking with Matt Robeson, the author of a more perfect union forum.com, a blog devoted to what's going on underneath the surface in politics. Some of the deeper, smarter discussion about politics in this country that we have, and Matt's been a not just a tremendous friend but also a frequent guest now on Off the Record because he's such a smart guy. He says he says smart things and he reads a lot and he knows a lot. So it's always good, Matt, to catch up with you and hear what you think is really going on. It makes for a kind of interesting discussion cuz i'm a little bit of a nerd about this stuff and as as uh, my listeners may know i'm uh, gearing up looking at the new hampshire state senate district 15 race although i haven't officially uh, declared uh, we took a step and uh, i'm happy to say that a friends of paul hodes committee has now been filed so i'm uh, jumping back into the political fray uh, uh, when I officially declare in in a big way, and all of this is really interesting to me. Um, Let's turn our attention to the state of the presidential race. What do you make of uh, the newest New Hampshire polling on the presidential race? So,
1: it's You know, it's certainly interesting. It's in keeping with some of what we're seeing in Iowa, some of what we're seeing nationally, which is a surge for Pete Buttigieg. Of course, you know, listeners here are familiar with the fact that in primary polling, you frequently see surges like this, and sometimes they're bubbles, like uh, we saw happen with Kamala Harris over the summer. Sometimes they're a little bit more sustained. Uh, So the jury's still out on whether this recent surge from Buttigieg um, is kind of category A or category B. What I thought was really interesting in the most recent St. Anselm's poll, which is a very well-done poll uh, from folks we know and have worked with in the past, is that under the surface, this race seems very unsettled. So the top-line numbers are you've got Buttigieg at 25, Biden and Warren at 15, Sanders trailing a little bit behind that. But underneath that, um, what you see is an awful lot of Democratic voters saying,
0: yeah, we
1: could change our minds here. Two-thirds of them are saying that their choice could change. And when asked specifically about alternative candidates and whether they would encourage them or discourage them from jumping into the race right now, there are an awful lot that are still looking for more candidates to jump in. I, I find that pretty surprising. Um, almost half would encourage Michelle Obama to get in right now, and almost a quarter would encourage Duval Patrick to get in, which he subsequently did. So to me, that says that this is a Democratic electorate that is very fluid, that is still shopping, uh, and all the numbers that we're seeing now in all the polls could easily change.
0: So one of the things I noticed about the the poll, and and I I agree with you, our friends at St. Anselm's are are good folks and smart folks, and they do things right. On the other hand, this polling sample, if I'm recalling, was something like 255 people. That is a pretty small sample uh, for a a. poll that really resonates that really should have uh, impact it it seemed to me that with that kind of sample at this stage in the race while the under the surface indications about the unsettled nature of the race are important there they may be the more important message here than which candidate seems to be surging at the moment the fact that this race is still unsettled um, Is of great interest to, uh, I think, about seven candidates who didn't uh, make the debate stage this week in Georgia, uh, who still think they have a a chance. And then you've got uh, Deval Patrick, who jumped into the race, notably when he went to file with Uncle Bill Gardner at the Secretary of State, he was accompanied only apparently by his wife and a lot of reporters, uh, but no organization of any kind at this point. And then you've got Mayor Bloomberg, who is bypassing New Hampshire and Iowa um, and uh, seems to be thinking about a, a very, very different strategy now. You know, in the debate this week in Georgia, a lot of people think it was ho-hum. A lot of people didn't get much from it. I I watched the debate. I actually thought Joe Biden did really well, came across as presidential. I thought Kamala Harris delivered a strong performance. Elizabeth Warren delivered her usual performance. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders was, well, he was Bernie Sanders. He, he, uh... Looks a little thinner and a little older, um, but that's okay. You had Cory Booker being passionate. You had Tom Steyer bobbing his head. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, I, I, I'm not sure what she was what she was doing uh, attacking Buttigieg, and then you had Buttigieg, who, at the age of thirty seven, mayor of a small town, a veteran. Um, is coming across as somebody with some gravitas who very clearly says look my experience on the ground in a small rural midwest town is exactly the kind of um magic that democrats need uh because i'm not from washington he is he is clearly playing the I'm not from Washington card and picking up uh, a message from some other candidates, as he said. So all you folks are from Washington and look at where we are. Look at the mess you've got us into. I call it the Laurel and Hardy, the Laurel and Hardy um, uh, offense by a political candidate. A fine mess you've gotten us into now. Uh, and that's uh, Buttigieg to a T. But he comes across with gravitas. He comes across as somebody who can take a punch, certainly judging by his debate performance when Tulsi Gabbard went at him tooth and nail. Um, he stayed calm. He was unflappable. And his answers um, made an awful lot of sense. The, the question is, is he sort of just the flavor of the month? Is he the... You know, the the blue plate special this week, uh, Will He Last? I mean, think about Elizabeth Warren's surge. It, it seemed huge. It seemed unstoppable until she came out with her financing plan for her health care uh, plan. And then the plan that was the plan of all plans for the planner in chief, Elizabeth um, kind of collapsed under its own weight at least in terms of the polls when people said you're going to spend How many trillions of dollars of our money? um, On health care and of course in the debates we had a lot of questions again about health care, but moved on moved on to other subjects But a lot of people for instance the Washington Post thought that Buttigieg won the debate What do you think yeah,
1: I mean so I think an interesting number to look at um, and to judge this. And five thirty eight had a pretty good run uh, write up on this, but just uh, just emerged uh, right after the debate. It's it's helpful sometimes. Look, as you noted in that New Hampshire poll, polls are based on samples and they have a margin of error, and you know people are familiar with that. And you're right, you know, a, a sample of two hundred fifty five people, um, you know, it's got a margin of over six point one percent. So you should view top-line numbers with, with a grain of salt. But one number that's kind of worth keeping an eye on as a leading indicator in this cycle is how polling respondents feel candidates' chances uh, are against Donald Trump. Because that is, is, is tightly correlated with what voters value in this cycle. They, they overwhelmingly and consistently, in polling, say that they are looking for the candidate that they feel most comfortable gives the best shot against Donald Trump rather than someone who matches their own ideology or policy preferences. And what you see there is Joe Biden is consistently viewed uh, as the candidate with the greatest chance to beat Donald Trump, which is probably why he's been so steady in the polling nationally. Now, the, the numbers that came out after the debate uh, the Wednesday night debate showed a little tiny decline, nothing that I would write home about uh, for Biden. They showed a little bump, uh, a few point bump for Pete Buttigieg, probably because, as you said, he comes across as having a lot of gravitas. Uh, he's, a, he's a skilled debater, um, you know, clearly very, very good on his feet, and very smart. Um, but, you know, again, if you look at those numbers overall, what you see is who leads in ability to beat Trump? Biden, Sanders. Warren, and now emerging as number four, Pete Buttigieg. So that's, I think, the thing to keep an eye on. Um, and Buttigieg's problem, of course, is his relative weakness with African American voters who are about 20% of the Democratic electorate. The other thing to keep an eye on is um, if he gets some traction in Iowa, will that then kind of play forward? As he moves into South Carolina and states with a higher percentage of African-American electorate, um, will they start to view him as a a candidate who has momentum and truly can beat
0: Donald Trump? So all of this has been somewhat complicated with the entry of Deval Patrick and Bloomberg getting in the race. Don't we have enough Dems already? I mean, do we really need more candidates? Well,
1: you know... Maybe, but you know, that, that, that metric of democratic confidence in beating Donald Trump has actually been trending down through the year. And currently about a third of Democrats and half of independents, which includes an awful lot of Democratic leading voters, uh, expect a nominee emerging from the current pool, that is before the entry of Bloomberg and Patrick, to lose to Donald Trump. That is not a very confident Democratic election. That's not a happy
0: so, place to be for a Democratic Party.
1: You're not thrilled. And so, you know, on the one hand, um, you can see being very frustrated as a Cory Booker, a Kamala Harris, uh, and, uh, and uh, Amy Klobuchar as, you know, wait a second. I have as good a case as any. Um, but for some reason, so far, that connection hasn't fully happened. And, you know, guys like Patrick and Bloomberg are looking at that. And we know that Bloomberg actually did some very specific Polling and Super Tuesday states that are about uh, you know a third to forty percent of the total number of delegates in the Democratic contest, and uh, Bloomberg thought he saw some weakness there for for Biden. He thought in in the polling, and um, he thought the the, wa- the water seemed warm and it was time to jump in. So there's there's some indication here. These are two very data driven guys um, who and they're looking at numbers here and saying. There is a path
0: here. So is this just a case of uh, spoiled Democrats whose last president had mojo, who had that indefinable, indescribable something, something special, the ability to inspire people when he spoke, the unflappable demeanor the 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 elegance the grace the the some special something that 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 Democrats felt uh, the ability to tell a story and fire up a crowd and give people goosebumps is it simply the goosebump factor in the current crop uh, absent Duval and Bloomberg that that Democrats are looking for and um, so if, if it's goosebumps. If it's goosebumps that folks are looking for, do either of Bloomberg or Patrick have a real shot? And what I'd like to do is we're going to take a break and uh, hold that question. And after we come back... Uh, we'll talk about it. It's off the record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL, AM, and FM, streaming live over the internet at NH Talk Radio. We're a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. We're talking with our special guest, Matt Robeson, the author of A More Perfect Union Forum.com, a terrific blog about what's going on in politics today. We're going to take. A short break to hear from our very important station sponsors. And we'll be back with more Off the Record after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hoods here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we're also archived for your binge-listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes, so you can find us anywhere, anytime, day or night. We're talking with Matt Robeson, who's the author of A More Perfect Union Forum.com, a tremendous blog that digs down underneath the superficial in politics and looks at the trends and the information and what's going on deep down at the foundations of what voters are thinking and feeling and how candidates are being seen uh, away from the kind of talking head, terrific from, you know, traditional punditry that we often get, which is kind of superficial. Matt has answers that go deeper. And before the break, I left Matt with the following question. So Deval Patrick is former uh, governor of Massachusetts and uh, recently a member of the Bain Capital team. uh, And Mayor Bloomberg America's mayor, in a way, and former mayor of New York and a billionaire, uh, look like they've gotten into the race for president. Deval Patrick, of course, filed for the New Hampshire primary. Bloomberg uh, has avoided that. And the question I left Matt with is, uh, do either of these new guys have a shot, especially given uh, the New Hampshire polls where we're seeing a surge for Buttigieg? Um, and uh, kind of some steady polling from Biden, Warren, and Sanders. Um, Why isn't it just a four-way race and going to stay there, and how do these guys have a shot? So, I think there's
1: two questions in there. The first is, um, are Democrats really just looking for the goosebump factor? You know, why? um, And there was actually a great article about this with some of our New Hampshire friends quoted uh, this week in The Atlantic. You know, why isn't Cory Booker um, catching fire, right? You know, um, he's also a Rhodes Scholar, just like Pete Buttigieg, and he's also a mayor of a small town who has a great track director, just like Pete Buttigieg. He's
0: passionate, and, um, and he's a passionate he's, guy. He, he Right, and our reporter friends say that he consistently
1: gives the best, most energizing, most exciting
0: speeches,
1: and, like, you know, so what's going on there? So, you know, Sometimes, so the question is, is it just a goosebump factor? And, you know, there's kind of an old story in politics that I know you've heard before um, from the same set of political consultants about a dog food company that spent millions of dollars on an ad campaign years ago to try and sell more dog food, and they went through all of this, and, uh, you know, they, 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 they did the ads, and their sales didn't go up, and You know, they were furious, and they went to the Madison Avenue execs, you know, we spent all this money, why the heck aren't we selling more dog food? And the executives said, well, sometimes the dogs just don't like the dog food. And you're right that there is a certain ineffable connection that um, politicians sometimes make, and sometimes they don't. Um, You met with and worked with and endorsed and, and traveled with Barack Obama a great deal, and you know that he kind of had that ineffable it, um, and for some reason, for some candidates, that's not happening. But then the second answer here is, well, you know, there's there's some numbers reasons. Um, we talked already about the fact that overwhelmingly Democratic voters are looking for someone who can beat Donald Trump. They've begun to express concern in polling that um, veering to the left. There's been a lot of media coverage recently about um, Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All, slash Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan leaning too far to the left um, and the need to have a a more moderate voice uh, emerge from the Democratic side. Um, So, you know, it does seem that there is a lane. Pete Buttigieg is currently sort of trying to occupy that as as the moderate alternative to the moderate alternative being Joe Biden. Um, You know, if you're not sold on Biden, but you think Warren and Sanders are a little too far to the left, there seems to be a space there. And that's that's what you know, voters are sort of test driving Pete Buttigieg right now. And I think the question over at Deval Patrick headquarters or Mike Bloomberg headquarters is, can we try to slide into that space?
0: So between the two, who has a better shot if either one does? Uh, uh, who has the better shot?
1: I, personally, I would put my money on Deval Patrick between the two of them. Now, look, I wouldn't write off anyone who plans to spend $500 million. Personally, I would love to spend $500 million, but I probably wouldn't spend it on my own campaign um, that's a big deal but you know there are a couple of data points here first of all um, the profile for mike bloomberg is not exactly suggestive of a path to success in today's democratic party 70 70- or eight year old billionaire plutocrat um with a very checkered history of uh comments that people can google i'm not laying an attack on him i'm just saying that the oppo research dump has happened um, and you can see how there might be some problems there But I wouldn't write off anybody with that much money to spend. Um, In Deval Patrick's case, though, um, look, you know, the track record of late entrance isn't great, right? Um, We've seen a little bit of historical evidence here. Wesley Clark, 2004, Fred Thompson, 2008. Candidates who look great on paper got into the race late as kind of savior, last-minute entrance. And it turned out that it just didn't work out that well when they actually started to campaign. In Deval Patrick's case... He's a proven, charismatic campaigner. Um, He has a wonderful biography, um, you know, of of growing up in poverty and achieving success. Um, And, you know, I think that there's a little bit of a breadcrumb here in that he does seem to have the prospect of of financial and political backing um, in a network. It's, It's very interesting that in 2016, at least it's interesting to me, that in 2016, Joe Biden went to Barack Obama. It's been widely reported and president obama talked him out of entering the race four years ago and deval patrick in 2019 went to barack obama and obama apparently did not put his thumb on the scale for his former vice president it's very hard to see deval patrick getting in with his old friend barack obama saying no don't do this deval and he did so you can kind of connect some dots there and um, it does seem like there's going to be some backing there.
0: Hmm. So if we look ahead and get out our crystal ball, how's the overall race shaping up?
1: So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little early to do the exercise that, that I'm kind of gearing up to do. But it, it's not too early to start to think about the exercise that all the campaigns are going to have to do. This ultimately comes down to a delegate fight. One of the lessons of 2008 and the success of the Obama campaign, you know, people ascribed his ultimate success to his charisma, to his his speech making, to his hopeful message, uh, and to his candidate skills. And that was certainly part of it. But a big piece of it was his team was just darn good at math. And they saw the states where he was polling favorably, where he had a, a, a path to victory, and they were able to add up the delegate count. Uh, The math really matters here, because ultimately, there are about 4,000 delegates in the Democratic convention process, meaning you need about 2,000 of them to get a majority and win the nomination on the first ballot at the convention. It's been 60 years since a candidate has failed to do that, and we've had a brokered convention. And so in campaign headquarters across America, very soon as things begin to settle down, there's going to be an awful lot of number crunching. Uh, and, you know, not to take people on a math exercise, but it's just two important things to know about the Democratic uh, Party process. One is that delegates are allocated proportionally. It's not a winner-take-all. So if you win a state, it's got 10 delegates, let's say you win with 51% of the vote, and I get 49% of the vote, we're going to split it. We're both going to get five delegates there. The other thing to know, though, is that in order to get any delegates, you've got to get at least fifteen percent. You've got to hit that threshold. So there's all kinds of complicated things that are starting to happen here with such a big field, in trying to figure out what are the states where you are going to have the ability to hit that fifteen percent threshold and start to amass delegates, and are you going to be able to uh, bring together a total that will keep you in the race, will keep you competitive? and can even potentially get you over the top to win the nomination.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, I I remember meeting Barack. Uh, He came to my office when I was a freshman congressman. I'd just gotten there. My stuff was still in boxes. This was even before you were on the team. Uh, He came all alone. We spent an afternoon together, and what was clear to me at the time among among other things, was that he had already done all the math. He and David Pluff had figured out uh, exactly uh, not only where the delegates were that they had to get, but figured out, it seemed to me, where every county, every ward in every county was that he was going to have to go to to dig up votes that Democrats had previously left on the table in a lot of cases. It was a matter of analysis and math and adding up numbers. And uh, it was uh, a pretty good argument for why uh, he thought that he could be the first African-American president Uh, In the United States and why it could be a help, not a hindrance with demographics that had begun to shift. Then Uh, it's kind of interesting to think about that now. Um, I'm wondering whether or not Democrats are looking at the kind of undertones of the reaction to Barack Obama, uh, who I I have said was uh, guilty in some eyes of a kind of uh, white nationalist, white supremacist tilt of an aggressive right wing of uh, governing while black and wondering whether or not uh, the Democrats are thinking about race and gender and sexual orientation, or have we moved past that?
1: That's yeah. a really good question, and there is a very robust debate going on in Democratic circles, about uh, the effects of mobilizing those demographics, how to do that most effectively. Um, There is a a little bit, in my view, of a a confusion, a conflation um, among some progressives of trying to be very, as they would put it, bold and progressive on policy, and that that's the best route to mobilize um those demographics um another thing that's kind of become clear is that it's not necessarily um a connection that if you want to mobilize more women voters you need to have a a woman nominee if you want to mobilize more african-american voters you need an african-american nominee Um, that connection isn't necessarily there um and in fact there's some thinking that it may be harder uh, for an African-American candidate like a Cory Booker to um, kind of show the African-American community um, that they are, uh, you know, they have a path to victory um, and to get traction. That, that may be that may be even harder. As Amy Klobuchar put it. Um, There's certainly um, a higher bar that women candidates have, have had to uh, struggle with. So it's a it's a very tough question. The, the only thing I will say is that about. Twenty years ago, about 2002, there was a very influential paper that came out that sort of argued that Democrats were on a path to demographic dominance because they were so strong with the growing segments of the American population—Latino, African American, uh, Asian—and um, of course, women voters were a majority of Americans. Um, that over time they were going to become completely dominant. Well, that didn't play out. for for 15 years, and one of the authors of that paper actually kind of retracted it a little bit in 2014. But in the last year or two, you've begun to see a bit more discussion about the idea that, well, maybe that was right, and maybe it was just a little bit ahead of its time. Um, But it does seem like the the, the challenge now for Democrats is to keep all of that coalition um, of, of demographic, interest issue voters um kind of pull together and if they can do that um they certainly have some strong strategic advantages
0: so in about a minute or so could you wrap up our discussion about delegate count and tell us how is this all going to split up what what candidates need to win the delegates and uh how's it all going to sugar out
1: Oh, man, if I could do that, and especially in one minute, I would um, i would be a wealthy man. Uh, look, uh, all I can say is, you know, it's a little fluid. That's probably why the Wednesday night debate, you didn't see too many attacks on Pete Buttigieg, right? Because the candidates were saying, eh, eh this, this may be a little bit of a bubble. Maybe it'll resolve on its own. We're still looking right now, today, just as of today, at a race where there's really only three candidates who, consistently get above that 15% threshold, Warren Biden and Sanders in enough States to make a real play for the nomination. And so what I think we're going to start to see uh, and traditionally see over the next few months is a campaign taking a very close look at, do they have a pathway to get in that game? Um, The one final thing I'll say is that um, Biden as of today has the best path he just polls the best in the most diverse set of states has the the best pathway to get above 15 percent amass the greatest delegate count and if there's a brokered convention he does seem to be stronger in the nomination process through automatic delegates um might have a better pathway on a second ballot and beyond
0: you heard it here on off the record with Paul Hodes. we've been talking to Matt Robeson, the author of a more Perfectunionforum.com, a tremendous blog. Matt, thanks for talking with us, folks, We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at NHTalkRadio.com. Well, this week we had a really interesting talk with Matt Robeson, the author of A More Perfect Union Forum.com. Matt digs beneath the surface of what's going on in politics, and we spent the show talking about not just impeachment, but the Democratic race and how fluid it is, what's going on, what's going up, what's going down, and how things might turn out in the end. In the end, Matt's opinion is that it may be Joe Biden, trusty Uncle Joe, who has the best shot in the long term at ending up as the Democratic nominee. We shall see, but if it happens, you heard it here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week with more off the record.